It's December at Monticello. It's chilly outside, but it's a really special time to visit the mountaintop. Visitors have the rare opportunity to tour the house after dark, beautifully decorated for the Christmas holiday. Most of that decoration comes from the natural world around Monticello. So that's what we're going to talk about today. This is A Rich Spot of Earth, a podcast about gardening and the natural world. I'm Michael Tricomi, manager and curator of Historic Gardens at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home in Albemarle County, Virginia. Before we get to Christmas, curator of plants Peggy Cornett and flower gardener Debbie Donnelly talked about just a few of the many ways to bring winter interest to the garden. This time of year, we're often cleaning the gardens up. It's really good for the wildlife and the insect life. If you leave the leaf matter on the ground, it gives them a place to spend the winter. And also, as you're planning your garden, even in spring, you might think about what will provide good winter interest. A lot of the shrubs look great in the winter. Butterfly bush looks beautiful with snow and ice on it and gamsonia. What's nice about the amsonia is in the fall, they turn a golden color and they hold that color for a long time into the season. What I do with things like amsonia, it'll look great until you have a heavy snowfall and then it might break them. So then I'll start cutting things down. But a lot of them are just loaded with seeds for the birds. So there's a lot of things you can leave. Chrysanthemums, asters, blackberry lilies. That's a great um, one, yeah. The blackberry lily, the reason it's called that is because the seed pods look like blackberries and they will hold on during the winter. Not always, especially if you get a snow or ice that breaks them. But they're very dark black and it's just beautiful with the snow falling. And the ones we have at Monticello, we believe are descended from ones that were planted initially in Jefferson's time because it's a plant from China. It's not native, but it is naturalized in our landscape. So they're one of our favorite perennials here at Monticello. We've also talked a little bit about Sternbergia, which is a bulb. Mm-hmm. It blooms in the fall, a yellow crocus-like bloom. But the foliage, which looks similar to Liriope, stays green all winter long. So it really gives you a nice green that you don't often see during the winter. The other plant that I really love in the wintertime is the Allegheny Pachysandra, which is native. And as the winter comes on, it gets a blue-green color, the leaves, and they get a kind of a blotching on them, silvery color, and they stay that way all winter long. And then in the spring, those leaves will start to die down and the flowers come up in the center of the plant and new fresh leaves will come up then. So it's essentially an evergreen in the -hmm. the landscape. Jefferson once described Christmas as the day of greatest mirth and jollity. But celebrations were much more modest back then. For one thing, people didn't always exchange gifts. If they did, It was usually just one small item. Historic interpreter Lou Hatch joined us to talk about Christmas at Monticello. The holiday season was about people getting together and feasting. Jefferson said he preferred vegetables to meat, though one of his favorite dishes was beef bouillie. Whether he ate that at Christmas time, I don't know. Usually the curators will set up the dining area 
usually the tea room with some desserts and things like a plum pudding. Plum pudding, yeah. There'll be eggnog out and about because we do have a reference, at least the grandchildren, to eggnog at one point. Did they have candied fruit? Yes, candied fruit certainly would have been in the wonderful glass apern that they'll be bringing out for the holiday season. In case you're wondering, beef boyi is a French stew. You slowly simmer the meat and serve it in two courses. First, the broth as a soup course, and then the meat as a separate entree. Jefferson referred to the holidays as, quote, the season of mince pies. Mince pie is filled with apples, raisins, beef suet, and spices, and that was certainly served as well. In terms of decorations, a lot of visitors expect the house to be decked out. But in Jefferson's time, decorations were more restrained. Customs like Christmas trees and stockings didn't become popular until the 1890s. Most of what we know for decorating at that time period would have been just fresh greens cut and probably laid on mantles. There's an image of some little sprigs stuck to windows somehow. And wreaths, they've been around for thousands of years. And in Jefferson's time, they might have done it just a few days before, if anything. In recent years, we've also been more thoughtful about the impact the decorations can have on the house. Lou designs our holiday decorations. We used to have wreaths all over the balcony in the entrance hall, fresh flowers and fresh greenery in the house. We don't do that anymore, trying to keep out the pests, which can be so damaging to the artifacts in the house. I use faux greens, but I do get to use dried items as long as they're not like fruit that's been dried. I would love to use actual lemon slices that have dried, but that's still going to attract critters. So the dried flowers that um, Debbie is always so generous with, not only do they have to be dried, but then frozen for a certain amount of time to kill whatever bugs. She actually picked uh, some straw flowers for me this year because I requested them. So I have a few of those in an arrangement. Well, I have to say that when you first changed over to the faux greens, there were some of them that I had to actually touch and smell <laughs> and really look at because they looked so natural and very beautiful. And I am not a plastic flower person, but you did a great job finding really nice things that well, look natural. Thank you, Debbie. It is a challenge. I actually was considering giving up decorating the house because I did not want to work with faux mm -hmm. items. And so I came into it <laughs> kicking and screaming. And actually, I love it now. It gives me more flexibility in a way. And a lot of it you can probably store year to year so you don't have to start from scratch. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. That's what exactly. We do, yeah. I do reuse things, mm -hmm. but I do make them different every year. The other thing Lou does is make spectacular wreaths to flank the entrance to the house. They're 24-inch straw wreaths, and every year they're different as well. You can use fresh materials, of course, on that. It's all fresh, in fact. Right. Because that's on the outside of the house. And they've got okra and uh, dried artichoke. Which you... is really not Jeffersonian, but I try to keep to 
materials that would have been perhaps available. Take a lead from Colonial Williamsburg that's mm-hmm. done this for years and the formal, balanced, colonial style of arranging wreath materials. And so we try to follow that lead. Thinking about design, you think about not only color, but light and dark and texture, yeah, texture, all kinds of shape. Personally, I love just a plain green wreath with mm-hmm. different kinds of greenery on it. But because we have them up for over a month, greens will dry out and they turn brown and start falling off. So I try to make sure that the wreath is covered with a lot of stuff. That's one of the tricks. Well, I have to say that one or two of your wreaths after they've been brought down have found their way to my barn. (laughs) (laughs) And they live out there all year long and they're still beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. Well, that's one thing with the wreath workshops. People say, I still have my wreath up from last year that I did. Yeah, and that's what I do. i make one to last for the year and so I don't put apples on it and things that I know will rot. I put things that will dry gracefully and it stays up until I put my brand new one up. Now do you put it outside the one the one you make in the wreath workshop? I put it in the dining room actually. Okay. All and right. then I take down the old one and put it on yet another shed. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well birds like to make nests in them too. We've had the big ones in the front of the house, not only making nests, but eating the, the apples. Yeah, the mockingbirds love those apples. <laughs> uh, we actually had a gentleman oh, yeah. gnawing on something I can't remember a few years ago and it was not something like okra or an apple that was that we, you would think was edible it was interesting. <laughs> interesting as you heard Debbie and Lou mention we hold annual wreath making workshops at Monticello we've been doing it for 37 years now one of the things that we wanted to touch on was the year-long process of harvesting material for the wreath workshop There's lots of things that come from the vegetable garden and from the flower garden that we use in our workshops each year. Bean pods, cotton pods, tobacco, sesame, okra, the globe amaranth, the coxcomb, a lot of really great wildflowers there, milkweed, teasel. There's lots of tansy. Tansy is an herb. It has medicinal properties. It's also a good insect repellent, but it has a really vibrant yellow flower and it dries nicely. Some people don't like to plant tansy because it can spread pretty aggressively, but the way we have it in the garden, we contain it into designated rows so it doesn't go go all over the garden. And we might want to mention the process of drying tansy and globe amaranth. We had a great year of coxcomb. You want to cut them when they're at their prime or even just a little before their prime. And we bundle them up. We use rubber bands and then suspend them from a rope, a string that goes across the room or a shed or something like that. And it takes a number of weeks for them to dry. We pack them away in a box until it's time for us to use them. And a lot of that is, is a dual purpose, right? So any coxum that we do harvest that isn't wreath workshop ready, we can definitely still save the seed right. from it. Right. Or in the process of drying them out, they drop so much seed they into a box. They do drop a lot of seed. So you don't want to dry them over your kitchen counter or places like that because each plant has literally 
thousands of seeds. So if, if people use coxcomb in their wreath, I do tell them often, this was grown in the garden and save that seed because you can grow it yourself in the spring. And then another thing that we've actually had a generous donation are lotus pods. They look wonderful on the wreath. And catalpa pods and bee pods. The little field poppies are very small and corn poppies, but you can cluster them together. But then some of the bread poppies are larger pods. Nigella, Love in the Mist, makes a lovely dried pod. I just love the cayenne pepper. You can bundle them together like a cluster, and they look so pretty on a wreath. The hydrangeas also make a really nice dried flower in a, in a wreath, and it's light, so it um, adds a lot of contrast to the wreath. We also use a lot of cones. A lot of cones. Uh, white pine cone, theodore cedar cones. And a lot of those cones you can cut in half, yeah. and they, they almost look like little wooden mm -hmm. flowers. Mm -hmm. So you yep. can do additional things other than just hanging a pine cone on your wreath. And then dried artichoke flowers are spectacular. Jefferson grew artichokes in the vegetable garden, and he was very proud to be able to bring artichokes to the table because it's a Mediterranean plant that doesn't like our climate. But we let them go ahead and go to flower instead of harvesting them to eat. I mean, it's a thistle-like flower, and it's beautiful purple. And if you dry them at the right moment, they will hold that color. And then I think okra is also spectacular. And that's another vegetable that was grown in the vegetable garden. And the okra dries a beige color. And the seams in the okra will split open, and they look like white stri stripes on the pod. They're very pretty, almost wooden. And, and then you can also split them apart and make them look like a star. So this year, I have all those things Peggy mentioned and a lot of things coming from the garden. So we got the artichoke, okra, tansy, red chili peppers, broom sedge, milkweed pods, yeah. sesame. The sesame is actually in the snapdragon family, but it makes this capsule it has four chambers, and they crack open, and the seeds just fall right out. So you just shake all those sesame seeds out, and then you use the pod on the wreath. You could probably use those indoors as well. Oh, definitely, yeah. I do. The arrangement for the dining room, I usually try to stick to food items edible there. Things, yeah. Yeah, edible things. <laughs> and I've seen herbs that they're beautiful in wreaths. Rosemary, same with dried sage, and a number of different herbs really look nice. They last a long time, too. They do. You, know, you, you can even make a, a wreath gift of dried herbs and add some cayenne peppers, and they can cut right off of it and throw it in the stew pot. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we, we did that a few years ago. We made a, an, an edible wreath. We put cloves of garlic on it, bay leaves, different herbs, peppers. It was Pretty interesting to see yeah. all that on a wreath. Those are some of the decorations we use. But the wreath base comes from evergreen trees and shrubs. We, we have a whole long list of different greens that we use for wreath making. M many different holly bushes we can collect from, spruce, Leland cypress, uh, arborvitae, and a lot of it is found on the Monticello mountaintop. A lot is found in, on the neighboring Mont Alto. We have a lot of Eastern red cedar over there that we harvest the female blue-berried cedar as well as the gold-tipped male cedar. 
I know with the boxwood blight, a lot of people really are shying away from that. So we make sure that we're harvesting from areas that are free of that. We like to use box as a background because it does stay green much longer. And so that's a good base and usually fill in with other greens on top of that. We have teams of people that go out and look for these greens and different ornaments to put on wreaths. Usually the folks at Morven Farm have hosted us for boxwood collection over there. And so we'll get a lot of boxwood clippings from them, which is really generous of them. They have beautiful boxwood. And actually it does help the plants out because when you're cutting the boxwood, it opens up the bushes so that light and air can get in there. So it really is beneficial to them as well. It really is all hands on deck. How many bags of boxwood do we need, Michael? <laughs> it's typically between 40 and 50. And that's garbage bags. <laughs> Big garbage bags. And you get water into them and refresh it periodically with water to try to keep them fresh. And stored outside. In a cool place. In a cool place, shaded place. This way they last the longest amount of time. We find beautiful flowers, pods, seeds, and greens everywhere. We're looking along the roadsides for certain materials. If you're stopping along the road, you certainly would want to ask permission from the landowner. But sumac is one that you'll find just along the roadside or out in the field somewhere. And it's very beautiful. It's a stem with seeds, almost looks like little berries, furry berries. It's a pretty rusty color that looks great at Christmas. Well, there's a, a great quote. Let me think about how it goes. One who truly loves nature sees beauty everywhere. And that's Vincent Van Gogh. That's pretty apt description of our collecting process, right? It is. You just overlook so many things until you really start looking at them and it gives you a whole different perspective. We're driving down the road, hey, magnolia pots. <laughs> you look high and low, right? You see what's hanging from the trees, like, oh, the cedrella. The right. Little, or the china berries are way up there, but then way down here we have... <laughs> Get your pole pruners out. <laughs> We're constantly harvesting for the wreath workshop, drying things, storing things. And so when you go to make a wreath at one of these wreath workshops, it really is the fruit of this year-long process. You're getting that year's worth of Monticello harvesting to pick from and to put on your wreath. One thing I love about with this plethora of stuff at our wreath workshops, we get 25, 30 people coming in for each workshop and they're all doing different wreaths because of all the different things they can choose from and just watching people get creative and they can be even using the same ingredients and come up with a totally different type mm -hmm. of wreath. We do give instruction in the beginning, suggestions of things and how to attach different things. We've got people that make it a tradition. There's a woman that her sister lives nearby, so she comes down from Canada every year to participate in the wreath workshop. And there's groupings of girlfriends or husband and wife teams. And we have a wonderful woman that would come with her seeing eye dog and her assistant, and she would make her wreath by feeling the materials. It was really interesting to see the wreaths that she would make. And even people that 
feel like they're not very creative. They're amazed at what they've done. They're all really thrilled with their reason. You never see the same reef go out. Everybody's reef is different. That's it for December. And that also concludes our first year of A Rich Spot of Earth. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in the new year. In the meantime, happy holidays. <laughs>